Good morning. Our scripture reading is from Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 21. If you're following along in the Pew Bibles, that's page 857. Luke chapter 2, verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius, the governor of Syria, was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there was shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and laying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby laying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for, they, for all they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Kate. What Christmas traditions does your family have? My parents had a pretty unique one uh, when I was growing up. Uh, our morning would progress probably similarly to your Christmas mornings. Uh, we'd wake up and eat breakfast, and then Dad would read the Christmas story from Luke 2, like Kate just did for us, and then we'd open presents. That's probably where most of your traditions ended. Ours did not end right there, though. Uh, after that, my mom or my dad would point out this little 3 by 5 card that was nestled deep in the tree somewhere. Uh, and on that card would be written a set of cryptic instructions, a clue, as it were. And that clue would lead to another clue, which would lead to another clue, which would lead to another. It was like this Christmas morning scavenger hunt. And usually the clue would rhyme in some kind of silly way, maybe something like Christmas trees are green, violets are blue. If you're really smart, you'll head to the loo. And so I'd go to the bathroom to find the next clue. Uh, they did this even uh, recently, and they've done it through the years for our, our kids. 
And now our kids love to do this for us. So I might show up to the house after work on a random Tuesday night in March, and I'll have a set of clues waiting for me um, in the house. Uh, but when, when I was a kid, the annual scavenger hunt led me to all kinds of places, inside, outside, upstairs, into the basement, into the loo, obviously. Uh, but year after year, it always led me back to the tree. The final clue would lead me back to the Christmas tree. Uh, while I was off in pursuit of the next tip or the next clue or whatever, one of my parents would slip back to the tree uh, and they would put this big round box under the tree. And then they would act like it was there the whole time, like I just missed it the first go around. Um, They still do that sometimes. And I'm like, Mom, I I know it wasn't there. I'm almost 40 now, okay? (laughs) But in that round box was that year's ultimate gift. Sometimes it was cash, sometimes it was something that I really wanted, a a Game Boy or something, but the whole episode built up to that last moment there at the tree. That was the reveal that I most looked forward to on Christmas mornings growing up. All the other gifts were great, but they all paled in comparison to what was coming in that round box. How about you? Are you giving away something epic this year? What's in that box under your tree right now in your house that is Uh, probably glistening in the glow of those lights even as I speak right now. Are there any Apple products under your tree? Some of you are desperately trying to hold your poker face right now. Uh, That new Apple Watch or the iPad, uh, whatever. Every time a new splashy Apple product comes out, they make the biggest deal about it, don't they? Um, The high rollers are invited into town. The big spenders, they make this big show of it. The true movers and the shakers show up. Apple knows how to put on a show when they are platforming a new product. Uh, Steve Jobs introduced the inaugural iPod and iPhone and iPad and Apple Watch to crowds filled with high-ranking and wealthy people. And rightly so. Those were revolutionary products that have changed our lives completely. They deserved the glitz and the glam of a high-dollar reveal. Those were announcements worth celebrating. But there was another announcement long ago that far outweighs the importance of a new set of wireless headphones, FaceTime, Face ID. It did not come with the glitz and glam that accompanies the biggest Apple news drops. The best news ever was not introduced to power players and big-time spenders. No, it was introduced to the lowest rung of society, a teenage girl with no clout, no power, no influence. It was brought to a 20-something carpenter with calloused hands and a bruised thumbnail. This news did not come in flashing lights, but in an unsuspecting way, an unexpected way to unsuspecting people at a completely unexpected time. But before that news was even a whisper, it was a promise many, many years ago. And we looked at that promise together last week. There was a promise that was made in the darkness Just before the dawn, a promise was made in the form of a birth announcement. And so today, I want us to breathe easy, knowing that this promise became a reality. Uh, Today's big idea kind of encapsulates the whole idea that we're after today. is simply this. God always keeps his promises. Super simple. Not anything revolutionary or new there, but something that we need to cling to nevertheless as followers of Jesus. God always keeps his promise. And although we just read from Luke 2 this morning, I think it's the most classic rendering of the Christmas story right there. 
we're actually going to look at another Christmas account together this morning. It's in Matthew. And if you have your Bible or if there's one right in front of you in the pew back, you can, you can grab that and turn to Matthew 1. I wanted us to see this story from multiple perspectives this morning. Now, why are there multiple Christmas accounts in the Christian Bible? Why, why different accounts of the same story? This is one of four, Matthew 1, Luke 2, uh, Mark, and John, each one of four different perspectives on the gospel story and the Christmas story. Now, there aren't four gospels. There's only one gospel. But these men each gave their perspectives like, like an instant replay at a football game. I know I use sports analogies a lot. I guess I apologize to you for that this morning. It kind of is what it is. I'll make it my New Year's resolution to use less sports and more other things. I don't know. Um, but if you've ever been watching a football game on TV and there's this close play, often it happens right down at the goal line, right before the, the ball goes into the end zone. The one team thinks that they scored. The other team is sure that the other team did not score. And in all the chaos of the moment, the refs aren't sure which way to go. It just happened really fast, and they don't know which ruling to make. Did he make it in, or did he get stopped? And so what do they do? They run over to the instant replay cameras. And there isn't just one camera. There are multiple cameras from different angles to help tell the story of that particular play. And each angle tells a slightly different story. From one angle, it might look like he didn't make it in. But from the other angle, it's clear that he did make it in. And if you put them all together, all the angles together, you can usually get the best idea of how the play unfolded and if the player actually crossed into the end zone or not. The same is the case. It's the same reason why there are four different gospel renderings of the same gospel story. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. All different angles and different purposes for writing from these men. But when you smush them all together, they tell a very robust gospel story and they tell a very robust Christmas story. And so we heard from Luke 2. Let's look at Matthew 1 a little bit this morning, too. So Matthew 1 paints this picture of Mary, who's a teenager. She's minding her own business, planning for a wedding. Invitations are probably already out in the mail. The big day was coming. When out of nowhere, unexpected to her, uh, one of God's angels appears to her and told her something that would change her life, obviously, and then flip the whole world upside down, so much so that more than 2,000 years later, we're still talking about little obscure teenage Mary. Uh, This angel came with news that was super baffling to her, completely confusing. It was an impossible message, way too much for her to believe. Now, if this is suspicious to you, maybe you're new to the Christian faith, or you're a little bit suspicious of what Christians believe, Uh, If you've never seen an angel before, and this causes you to be like, eh, just not so sure about the Christian faith, I've never seen an angel. Um, First, you're in good company, because I have never seen an angel before either. But second, just because you've never seen a thing does not discount the possibility that it exists. And I think you probably agree with that. If you don't count yourself as someone who believes the message of the Bible, I just encourage you to not too easily discount stories like we're dealing with today. Just because you've never experienced it doesn't mean that Mary didn't actually come face to face with an angel. You couldn't possibly be everywhere in the galaxy at the same time. Thus, you cannot disprove this idea that angels 
exists. There are a million things that you've never experienced or observed firsthand that you still believe in, and I could list a bunch of them now. We won't. We're going to get through uh, the text this morning. But for this morning, if you count yourself in that category, let me just encourage you to take uh, a few minutes here, set aside your skepticism, and see if God may grant you faith to believe in the impossible, the unbelievable, of God come down to man, of the incomparable incarnation of God. Incarnation just means God come in the flesh. On that first Christmas, number one, the reject became royalty. On that first Christmas, the reject became royalty. We recently got a brand new puppy, and she is legit the centerpiece of our home right now. Um, Her name is Nugget because she could easily pass for a chicken nugget and because she costs as much as a golden nugget. Um, She's a very expensive dog because of years and years of careful breeding that was required to produce her, a hypoallergenic dog. Uh, She is purebred of purebred. The good news is that we didn't have to pay a dime for her. Um, That's a story for another time that I'm glad to tell you. Uh, But if we would have paid for her, it would have been somewhere in like the $4,000 range. I've paid less for cars in my life than that dog costs. Now, I want to be careful as we transition this uh, illustration from my dog to Jesus. Jesus was certainly purebred of purebred. There's been none pure. There couldn't be. He was God of very God. And yet, his humility is striking nonetheless. Uh, If you were evaluating the value of Jesus based on the men and women in his ancestral line, you might be tempted to marginalize him, to avoid eye contact and just move along. His lineage was probably more like the first dog that Miriam and I ever owned. He was a little mutt puppy that we found in the woods with all kinds of problems, and that is also a story for another problem. But he was no purebred. You see, though Jesus himself, though Jesus himself was unsullied, supremely glorious and beautiful, he did not come from a line of upstanding, outstanding, God-fearing people. That was not Jesus' lineage. Jesus' family origins on Joseph's side can be tied back to the royal line of King David, but the true sort of in the weeds, generation to generation evolution of his ancestors is lined with murderous, adulterous, incestuous, rebellious, vengeful men and women. The story of Jesus' family line spins quite a trashy tale, and you can find it throughout the Old Testament. We don't find this part of the story in Luke, which is why I had us flip back to Matthew. Uh, And we won't delve into all of Jesus' ancestors this morning, but let me share some quick highlights of Jesus' lineage for you. Notice, for instance, in Matthew 1, verse 3, that this woman named Tamar is mentioned. She is the subject of what is perhaps the Bible's most racy story. You can find it in Genesis 38, which relays the story of her incestuous affair with her father, Judah, after he failed to fulfill his obligation to to provide her with a child. So Tamar and Judah are both Jesus' ancestors. Or take, for instance, Rahab from verse 5, who was a well-known prostitute. From Rahab's offspring would come the Messiah. Or think of David himself, who committed adultery with Bathsheba and then had her husband killed as a cover-up. 
the Redeemer would come from this lying, murderous, adulterer's family. Or consider Joseph, Jesus' father. What he lacks in obscenity, he makes, for, makes up for in mediocrity. Sure, there's no checkered past that we know of with Joseph. We don't really know his past. But there's nothing remarkable about him either. If you were coming or if I was coming, like Jesus, to make a mark on the world, to announce the coming Messiah and Redeemer, you would probably never, to be, never choose to be born into a, a no-names home like Joseph. You'd probably choose to be born into a royal's family or a rich family or a famous family so you can maximize and leverage your influence to the world. But not Jesus. Jesus comes in humility. Whether they were unremarkable people or people of disrepute, we find this unlikely Messiah would come from a line of misfits and rejects. Jesus came from a line of misfits and rejects. And so what is the point here? Why do I highlight this from the early parts of of Matthew 1? Here it is. No matter how dark your past, no matter how broken your present, no matter how much of a reject you might feel like today for whatever reason, there is absolutely no situation that is beyond redemption. Jesus' story tells that story. No story is beyond redemption, not when God is in it. Have you cheated on a spouse? Have you cheated your company of money? Have you done worse than this? God redeemed and used people like that to bring about the Messiah of the whole world. Do you think that he cannot craft your brokenness and sinfulness to bring about glory to his name? He can and he will. He wants to use you and your checkered past. Recently, we've been singing this sort of clever reworking of an old Christmas hymn. It's called, O Come, All You Unfaithful. It's been a blessing to our church, I think. And I think it encapsulates some of the emotions that we're meant to feel when we read through Jesus' genealogy. Jesus comes from a long line of unfaithful. Here's another take on that old hymn as well. It says this, O come, all you faithless, joyless, and defeated, O come, O come you to Bethlehem. Why should we go to Bethlehem this morning on this Christmas week? It's because that's where Jesus is, the baby king. It's where God becomes man. It's where Jesus said through proclamation and demonstration that Christmas is for the weary, for the messed up, for the broken. So listen, if your life is not Instagrammable right now, If there's more shame there, then you know what to do with this Christmas. Christmas is for you. I mean, just look at Jesus' family line. It's been said that hell is filled with people who think they should be in heaven, and heaven is filled with people who know they should be in hell. In other words, if you get the sense this morning that you don't belong for whatever reason, you're in a good place. Right here is a good, safe place to be in. If you feel run down, And if you feel needy, you're right where you should be. If you feel desperate and hopeless, then good. Then good. Come to the Father through the Son and feel the warmth of his welcome this morning in Jesus. Because of Jesus, you get welcomed into the Father's warm embrace. That first Christmas, royalty, that's Jesus, became a reject. So that rejects, that's us, could become royalty. God is good to us 
in Jesus. The people who walked in darkness, that's us, have seen a great light, that's Jesus. Indeed, on that first Christmas, the light of the world came to disperse the gloomy clouds of night, like we sing in that old Christmas hymn. But also on that first Christmas, the impossible became possible. First, the reject became royalty, and the impossible became possible. It should probably flip number one. The royalty became reject for our, for our place and for our sin. But second here, the impossible becomes possible. When God shows up, the impossible becomes possible. So I want us to notice something pretty subtle here uh, in Matthew 1, but it's really telling the word choices that Matthew makes, uh, especially in verse Uh, in the first 16 verses. Just as an example, look down at verses 2 and 3 of Matthew 1. I'll put it up on screen to make it easier for you. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram. If we were to keep reading, you'd notice the same pattern continuing all the way through verse 16. It kind of almost lulls you to sleep. But if you read the end of verse verse 16 carefully, you'll notice um, uh, subtly uh, that you'll be jolted out of your sleepy state after reading through 16 verses of this lineage, right? And it's because of this. And we should be wary of dismissing these genealogies as boring, uh, as an irrelevant way to start the story of Jesus. It's not an irrelevant, boring way to start the story, even though it may feel so on the surface. Uh, It's very important, if not a little monotonous. I'll hand that to you. I'm always tempted to skip them in my own personal Bible reading, and sometimes I do. Uh, Full disclosure, you probably do too. Maybe most times we skip them, but there is gold there if you mine for it long enough and hard enough. So take a look. Um, In verses 1 through 16a, so like the first part of verse 16, um, all use past tense but active verbs. So like, Abraham was the father of, or Abraham fathered Isaac, Isaac fathered Jacob, and so on the pattern goes through verse 16. But then the pattern breaks, and this is intentional and on purpose. And we get a past, but a passive verb, and not an active verb. This is huge. Matthew is saying something really important and beautiful. Look at the end of verse 16 on screen. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born. So Matthew is implying something here. He's implying that Joseph is not the father of Jesus in the same way that all those other dudes were fathers of their children. Something unique is happening here, and you have to look carefully to see it. And I think he's implying even a little bit more, not just that they were, he, uh, Joseph was a father in a different way. He's implying that there was divine activity at the birth of Jesus. He's saying that Jesus was born from Mary in a supernatural way, That's about to be explained in verses 18 through 25. So look at verse 18 on screen. Before Mary and Joseph came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. This Christmas, let's not skip over or forget the wonder of the Christmas story. The glory of it, the mind-blowing nature of it, one time in history. One time in history. That's what verse 18 assumes there. Now the birth of Jesus took place In this way, in the lives of real people, one time in real history, a woman conceived without ever being with a man. It means there was a real day when the real Mary discovered 
that she was really pregnant. And in her mind, she knew there was really no possible way that she could be. A day when that news blew her mind, like I hope we can sort of stir up in our own minds today. Let it blow your mind afresh today. A day when Mary's heart was full of fear about what her daddy would think of her, of what Joseph would think of her. It's an impossible story, and yet it happened. God showed up and made the impossible possible. When Joseph heard the news, he was probably in total disbelief. Mary, I thought you loved me. We sent out the invitations last week. He was probably grieved in his heart. The woman he had pledged his life to and his love to, the woman he was eager to marry, in his mind, had cheated on him. She was pregnant. He probably didn't believe her at first. Would you believe her at first? Pregnant by the Holy Spirit. Right. Maybe that's the response of your heart today. No way the Holy Spirit did that. Come on. Get real. If that's you, again, I hope that you'll just legitimately explore these claims. If you want to explore it more deeply, I would love to speak with you. We can grab coffee or a meal together in the next couple of weeks and talk about the reality of God become man to redeem us. Or maybe you don't have a hard time believing that God did that through Mary, but he would, he would never do the impossible for you. You doubt it, so you become cynical about your faith. You've stopped reading your Bible, and it's been weeks or months or years since you've done that. You've stopped praying. You've stopped believing that our God is the God who makes the impossible possible. I just want to encourage you to look at this story with fresh eyes this morning. Acknowledge that God can do what he wants, when he wants. And then can I encourage you to plug into that power source through prayer? Can I plead with you to get on your knees today and continue begging God to save the souls of your sweet kids or to rescue the hearts of your unbelieving neighbors whom you are good friends with that will spend forever somewhere? Or beg God to give you wisdom to sort through your complicated financial situation right now. Or beg God to understand how to approach that unjust boss of yours. Or to beg God to give you strength to bravely continue to fight against that sin that you just cannot shake. Or to beg God to give you the stamina to be the godly rock in that relationship that is faltering right now, be it marriage or family or otherwise. He really is the one who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. But we must ask. According to his power that is at work within us, ask. One day, one way he proved that he is willing to do more than we ask or think is by making the impossible possible. He did it then, he can do it now. But in any case, Joseph was an honorable man, and he was intent on divorcing Mary quietly. He didn't want to make a scene and embarrass her. In the midst of his making plans to divorce Mary, he laid down to take a nap. And this was no ordinary nap. When God shows up, the ordinary becomes extraordinary. So in Joseph's very ordinary sleep, God steps in with extraordinary news. The unfulfilled was going to be fulfilled. And then third, the seed was going to become the Savior. The seed became the Savior. 
So for thousands of years, there was a seed of promise had been buried deep beneath the surface of the scriptures and of the experience of humanity. The seed buried beneath the surface. And much like my childhood Christmases, there had been clues laid out all over creation during that time for these thousands of years. Maybe not in clever rhymes that featured the loo, but the clues were there. If you could read between the lines, you'd have known that God had this amazing plan and that this seed was going to sprout. We talked about this last week in Isaiah. And now it was time for the seed to finally sprout up through the soil. It had been nearly 700 years since that promise referenced there in Matthew 1.23. It's on screen. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. What the Lord had spoken by the prophet was the seed. And Jesus coming to be born as a baby was the sprout. 700 years since the prophet spoke, and thousands more that since the initial hints of a Savior surfaced way back in Genesis 3, which is what we'll cover next week. But the Savior was coming, and he was coming soon. The unfulfilled was becoming fulfilled. The ancient seed was sprouting a Savior, a Redeemer. It had been a long time coming, much like we feel now. Jesus, when are you going to come back and fix it all? Make it all right. A long time coming. Excruciatingly long, but God was coming. And finally, the unfulfilled promise was becoming fulfilled. The incarnation demonstrates that God will always come through on what he promises. It may take longer than you want it to. If today you're waiting on God for something, don't lose hope. Don't think that he's forgotten Appearances can totally be deceiving. Mary wasn't expecting the news that she got. Joseph had just laid down for a nap when he got it. Then the Magnificent broke through the mundane and at the unexpected time with the best news of all time. The God who'd flung the planets into space was making himself small and coming to earth as a baby. It may take longer than any of us want. It may even take beyond our lifetimes to see the promises fulfilled that we want. But God will come through. It is his nature, and you've got to hold on to that, friend. He is fully trustworthy. Finally, the promise was reaching fulfillment on that first Christmas morning. And what was that promise? Well, in a single word, the promise was Emmanuel. You'll find this at the end of verse 23. Emmanuel means... God is with us. Emmanuel means God is with us. As that seed emerged from the ancient soil and became seeable and knowable and touchable, when Jesus came, the untouchable became touchable. Think about Isaiah, way back in Isaiah 6, and he sees God and he says he's holy, holy, holy. He wants to run from his presence because he cannot approach the holy God. God, to that point, was untouchable. But when Jesus comes, he breaks that barrier, and the untouchable becomes touchable. Verse 23 of Matthew 1. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. God with us. The king of the universe, once wrapped in robes of eternal, unapproachable light, in the splendor of heaven, on an unrivaled throne, himself would have to be swaddled to keep warm and feel safe. The same God, 
unapproachable, now has to feel, be swaddled to feel warm and safe. Mary was holding God in her arms. What? The untouchable becomes touchable. You could count his fingers and his toes. God Almighty. The omnipresent God whose glory dwarfs the planets and the galaxies was now confined to the little tiny space of an animal feeding trough, a manger. God would have to learn to walk. God would have to learn his multiplication tables. God would have to learn how to punctuate a sentence. He learned and progressed at his father's carpentry trade. He got splinters. He scraped his knees and his elbows. It's such an astounding thought. God had to become touchable man in order to rescue us. If God had not become man like us, we'd be without hope. You see, we needed what this boy was destined to become. You can see it back up there in verse 21. And it's the last thing that we'll discuss this morning. On that first Christmas, the life giver became the death defeater. The life giver became the death defeater. Verse 21. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. He will save his people. What a comforting sentence. The only way God could save his people was by becoming one of his people. And the only way he could save them, save us from our sins, was to be sinless himself and die in the place of the sinful. Jesus was born for the purpose of dying. The God who breathed life into this world was coming into the world with the express purpose of dying. Now listen, all of us in here, we are destined to die. Be encouraged this morning. We are destined to die. But none of us in here was born for the purpose of dying. None of us here were born for that purpose. Jesus was the one man in history born with the purpose of Not just the destiny, but the purpose of death. Jesus' death is life-giving and death-defeating. All those in Christ will be made alive, and more alive than ever to fully flourish as loyal subjects of a just and gracious king. So that baby's first soft whimper was God's war cry against the enemy, and it launched this global rescue campaign for all that's broken and warped in our world. A baby was born to take the sins of his people, to piece the brokenness back together and make all the sad things come untrue. It's not a fairy tale. It's history, and it is hope for all of us this morning. Today, I hope you know this Jesus in a personal, intimate way. I hope this week is the merriest Christmas ever, because this is the best news ever. Why don't we just go ahead and have the merriest Christmas? Every Christmas, those clues led me back to the tree where the best gift was waiting for me. 